Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. You are listening to the second episode in our trauma series. And in today's session, we have an exciting discussion lined up that explores surrogate partner therapy and its role in healing from relational trauma, among other fascinating topics. Trust me, this is a conversation you definitely don't want to miss. Our special guest for today's episode is Michelle Renee an esteemed intimacy guide based in sunny San Diego, California. Michelle's work is as diverse as its vibrant, ranging from professional cuddling to surrogate partner therapy. But above all, her passion lies in working with trauma survivors, helping them find safety within themselves and in their relationships with others. In 2022, Michelle launched softcockweek.com, a platform for education, normalizing, and celebration of flaccid phallus. She's also the dynamic host of two podcasts, The Intimacy Lab and The Softcock Podcast. You can find her social media and the website in the show notes. Throughout this discussion, we'll explore questions about the nature of surrogate partner therapy, the intersection of trauma and sexuality, the importance of safe connections in therapy, and how body-centered practices can aid in healing. We'll also delve into how therapy experiences translate into our daily life and personal relationships, and discuss some strategies for continuing the healing journey 
outside of therapy session. So get ready for an insightful ride. And remember, we have fresh content for you every week on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button for your weekly dose of wisdom and engaging conversations. You can find the link to our YouTube channel in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Michelle Renee to our show. Michelle, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am very excited as well. You're the first surrogate partner that we have, therapist we have on our show. And I'm sure many of our clients, they don't know our clients, listeners, they don't know about all the wonderful things that a surrogate partner therapy does and how we can help people with healing their trauma. So can you tell us more about what does your job entail? Yeah, that's a great question. So surrogate partner therapy has evolved a lot over the years. So I'm going to talk about how it is now rather than the evolution of it. So if you've heard the term before, pay attention because you might get a newer, a newer meaning for it. So a surrogate partner works with a talk therapist. They're in collaboration together. If there's not a talk therapist involved, myself and my colleagues, we don't call it surrogate partner therapy. That's the first level of entrance is we must have a talk therapist involved. And then as a surrogate partner, we show up as kind of a relationship role model for the client that's been established in talk therapy for a bit. And they've hit some kind of roadblock to where... The therapist is like, there's not a lot of activity happening. We're not moving. What can we do to kind of shake things up a little bit? So a surrogate partner is trained and we come in with a, a toolbox that's different than the talk therapist. So we, we get to be like a supplemental modality where we get to touch our clients. That's a big difference between surrogate partner therapy and talk therapy. But because we get to touch them, we get to build a little bit of a different relationship with the client. And that creates a lot more opportunity for new information to come up. So we're teaching the client kind of how to build a foundation of safety and and clear, direct communication so that eventually our work can become a little bit more peer-to-peer, that I don't have to show up with my teacher hat as much as I get to show up with my Michelle hat and engage with the client in a lot of platonic activity so that the client can kind of learn how to set a new baseline for relationships, especially if they're coming in with some kind of trauma in their background. I agree with you. I think the information that you can get from physical touch is very, very powerful. In my training as a psychologist, I was taught that like in order to help with keeping the frame for what we do, like we keep the physical contact minimal. So like it's kind of like mostly shaking hand. I know that even hugging feels like at times like a blurry boundary for us, which can be great because people can, they know the context, but I think there's just so many information that people might get if they're working with someone, there's going to be a level of mutual touch and there is a more of a two-way relationship in a way, because with therapy, it's mostly clients and like we show up as clinicians as ourselves, but they don't know much about Uh, So there's not as much of a kind of like a mutual exchange. I'm kind of curious, how did you get into this route? I'm going to give you the shortest answer to this as I possibly can. I personally came out of a very unhealthy relationship. I was married for 18 years, also had a, a 
problematic childhood in some ways, though doing this work, I realized it was not nearly as um, traumatic as a lot of people experience. But I didn't come out of that marriage with a great sense of bodily autonomy. I didn't, I didn't have a great yes and a no is how it really comes down to if we break it down to the most simplest terms is I wasn't doing a great job of taking care of myself. And I started to explore my sexuality. I found Betty Dodson to make it really short. I worked with her. I changed how I saw the world. I found professional cuddling. That gave me an opportunity to learn about good boundaries and to start practicing them regularly. And then I eventually expanded that offering to surrogate partner therapy because I wanted to do more clinical work. So for our listeners that they don't know about Betty's work, can you tell us like a snippet of like, what was she doing? What was her workshops like? I know they were legendary. So give us a snapshot. Yeah. So when I met her, she was 85 years old. She would be described in some circles as a silverback gorilla. I've heard that as a descriptor of her. She talked like a sailor and she was incredibly unapologetic of how she showed up in the world. And her big thing was being the grandmother of masturbation. So she would teach these workshops in her Manhattan apartment for, I think, 30 some years or something, where she would get a group of women together for a two-day workshop. The whole workshop is naked. You walk in and you literally have to hang your clothes up at the door before you even enter her living room. And you got to just witness other vulvas to realize that yours was beautiful and that they were all beautiful. And then she taught some masturbation techniques. And then you actually got to do what was called erotic recess, where everyone in the the workshop masturbated together. And then we also ended with like a group massage. I don't know if you've ever had like five or Ideally, five people massage one person and then it's like 10 Ooh, hands fun. on you at one time. <laughs> makes your, it makes your brain break. But, but in that space, I learned to love my body, including my vulva. I learned how to orgasm much more effectively for myself because I was never masturbating before that. It just wasn't something that was, I didn't realize how important it was as far as learning how my body operates. So my partnered sex got better. I was able to more reliably reach an orgasm. And I learned that the orgasm was my responsibility and that that was a big thing that took maybe a couple of years for it to really sink into me that I was not responsible for my partner's orgasm and they were not responsible for mine. And that felt incredibly edgy for Michelle, who came from very conservative West Michigan, you know, Christian values, and I'm supposed to take care of my husband's sexual needs and all these things, right? To pull that apart was a big deal in my life. Well, I bet your story resonates with so many of our listeners and including like many people that I know. I was lucky that I think through the kind of early sexual encounters I had that I somehow I became assertive, but I have so many friends even that are my age. And it's like, okay, I guess the guy is here. I'm not into it, but I have to say yes, (laughs) because he's here, right? Like you kind of women kind of got socialized in a way to kind of, being okay with non-consensual touch or muscle through it. So like, it's really hard to work on kind of like knowing where your no is and not saying yes to a maybe that's very negative in a way. Yeah, I, I really ruined sex for myself for a lot of years because I was not putting my needs first. And I really felt like my job was to keep my husband satisfied in my satisfaction while he would 
he was concerned with it to some extent, but not enough to the point of, you don't want to be doing this, we shouldn't be doing it. There was never that encouragement to celebrate my bodily autonomy. And that was, that was deeply ingrained. My mother modeled for me avoiding rather than just saying, no, I, I don't want to have sex with you. She would put extra clothes on. There were, there were jokes in her house about her not shaving so that my dad wouldn't want to touch her. Like weird messages like that, rather than just being like, no, you get to make a decision on what happens with your body. That is yours to to honor and to hold because without doing that, our body holds that memory in a very similar way to, to how it would hold a sexual assault. And, and we are going to destroy our desire for sex if we don't start to honor that. Absolutely. I'm 100% agree with you. And I think it's just a culture of specifically in many conservative communities that it's important to take care of your husband or partner in a heterosexual context. Otherwise, they find pleasure someone else, somewhere else. So there's that kind of a kind of way of looking at things. And sometimes women are not even feeling entitled. Like, I don't know if that's the right word to say, but to their pleasure, right? Like their mm -hmm. pleasure comes secondary. So like if it happens, it's great. And that's how, that's why I have a little bit of mixed feeling when they say orgasm is not end goal, right? So I say, okay, mm -hmm. absolutely. I get it. But if, if your pleasure is front and center and you don't want orgasm, sure. But if we're reframing like bad sex that now you have to kind of think journey was great, <laughs> I'm not on board with that. Yeah, I know it's complicated. It's such a complicated message because I don't like goal-oriented sex, right? I don't want sex that's on this escalator or, you know, you know, direct line of sex. I do want people to advocate for themselves. And I remember being in the dating world and having to learn the lesson of like, she comes first. Right. Before I had a, a new encounter with someone, it was like, I need to make sure I got my orgasm first, because what I learned pretty quickly was that if my my male partner came first, I was left kind of hanging and it wasn't a great experience. So like, yeah, that was part of my development, too, is like, oh, I can orgasm. I know how to ask for what I need to orgasm. And there's no reason my partner can't be involved in that if we're both a big yes. And if we're not both a big yes, I have to consider, is this the person I want to be having sex with? 100% agreed. And I think what's very interesting with surrogate partner work is that navigating from this place of platonic connection to erotic connection. Can you tell us more about how does that happen? How do people usually experience that? Yeah. Well, first of all, this work usually lasts up to and well over a year sometimes. This is a very slow process that it it's everybody moves through it differently. We come in, we start our work with a lot of kind of diagnostic exercises happening to figure out where our starting point is. And we want to get to a point where we as a team, you, me, and the client are looking at what do I need in this work? Sometimes erotic touch is part of that need to feel like we've hit our goals. But a lot of times it's not part of the work. So it's it, this goes back to when we used to call this sex surrogacy, right? That it was very much about the sexual act and, and fixing the, the sexual dysfunction through sensate focus to alleviate erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. 
And now in the work, I think of it as way broader than that. So sometimes erotic will be will be something that is required, but we don't really know that at the beginning of the work. Sometimes we know that it's not on the table at the beginning of the work, really depending on who the client is and, and what they're what we're working on. Because if we're working on someone who has a sexual assault background, especially in childhood, where they've really had their their yes and their no trained out of them, we may never need to get to an actual sexual encounter to get them to where they need to be next. It might just be teaching them how to feel safe and teaching them how to advocate for themselves and identifying they're like a lot of times they're very numbed out they're, They don't even realize how numb their bodies are. We start to bring that back online. And if they've never had an issue with really connecting with people, that might be all they need. And then they they go back out into the world and they flourish because now they've learned how to communicate their needs. And and like, how do you how do you how are you supposed to show up for a sexual situation and not feel safe because you have this background? And then you go, well, why isn't my penis showing up? I'm like, that makes total sense to me that your penis is struggling because you don't have a real sense of safety in your body and you don't even know what you don't know, right? But but in a case where the client that maybe has delayed their sexual debut, that first sexual encounter in the safety of surrogate partner therapy might be really, really helpful to help them move forward, right? So it really just depends on how the client presents and where the work goes. And, and that's a decision that keeps being reconsidered as the work progresses. It makes sense, right? Because many people, especially adults, that when they're struggling kind of with kind of some kind of trauma, it stays in their body. So maybe they have done some kind of psychological work to kind of change their perspective and beliefs. But when it comes to erotic space, like their body has has the responses that you mentioned. Maybe that it's very common. I feel hear people saying that I feel numb or I feel like, you know, I'm out of my body, spectating what's happening inside. So and even there's just like issues with all sorts of things, lack of orgasm, erectile dysfunction, all of those kind of things. What's been some of the manifestation of trauma that you've seen in your work with your clients? I think a lot of times they show up I get a lot lately, especially of people that have high, high anxiety when it comes to sex, right? And I'm like, okay, so the story in my head is that you think I have some magic pill or wave a wand that we're going to jump into bed together and your anxiety is going to be gone, right? Mm -hmm. And when we start to really dig into like their background, it's like, oh, there's people pleasing tendencies, right? That might come from a, a demanding parent that, you know, you had to have perfectionism to be valued in, in your childhood. Or, gosh, I, I'm i trying to think exactly one of them that comes to mind when we started to evaluate yes and no. We have a game that we play. And they literally were like, I actually don't even know how to even decide if I'm a yes and no. And it's like, oh, well, of course, because you had that trained out of you due to sexual abuse in your childhood. Gosh, other things that come to mind, a lot of like self-worth issues. So if you come into a relationship with someone and your self-worth is low and you think you have to perform a certain way in order to be worthy of the love from that person, like, I know I've been there. You're putting yourself into a place where your needs don't matter. They're not even on the list. And then you're not showing up authentically in the relationship. And 
you know you're not showing up authentically in the relationship. So you're always questioning, is this person really love me? Because you know you're not showing up as yourself. And when you drop that mask, what's going to happen? So we try to like, I try to work to really help people take a chance in a safer environment to show up as themselves and see that they're still worthy of love just for being people, right? We're just humans and we don't need to prove our worth to the people in our lives. You know, I had this client that he went to the sex party and he was coming from a more of a conservative background. The first time he was attending to kind of wanted to attend this event and they had this exercise of saying no. We're asking you things, you're saying no. And he said, like, it was shocking for me how difficult it was to say no. So he was saying that I thought I'm a kind of assertive person, but it's just, it seems like even for our male clients or people with penises, it's hard to kind of like push back and assert their needs. And that can be very, very powerful when you, someone is not getting guarded, they're not retaliating when you say no. Well, and and on top of it, put that in a high pressure environment and how are you supposed to respond? So that is where our work stays in the platonic realm for such a, a, a long period, because you've got to learn these skills without being in a sexual space, because as soon as we get in the sexual environment, our brain just goes to that thing we know, right? We just kind of it's hard to take new skills into that space without a lot of practice. And so those games like the yes, no game, we do a very similar game in our work as surrogate partners. We just take it into a lot of different levels that they don't do in those in those workshops because I've been in lots of those parties, workshop space where they play that game. And I do remember the first time going like, oh, wow, I, yeah, if I slow down, I can actually feel what my answer is. It's in my body. And sometimes people can't, but most of the time when people play that game and they're asked to like, did you notice that when you wanted to say yes to something and you had to say no, how it felt in your body or vice versa, when you had to say no, but you wanted to say yes. And like light bulbs will go off over people's heads. You can kind of see it where they're like, oh, you're right. If I just slowed down in life, my body has all the answers. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting that many of trauma survivors, they engage in lots of sexual experiences or some of them they do. And they find that it's not like they have high sexual desire. They're just like a way of kind of more of a people pleasing, reenacting their trauma, which can also impact their kind of ability to connect. One thing that I'm always curious about, I think surrogate partner therapy is really, really valuable but requires a building of erotic connection, right? And as a psychologist, I never practiced that muscle. How do you do that in the room with people that you want to help? It's really interesting. I think we're all different in how we engage sexually. So that includes surrogates. For myself, it's it's interesting. This last year, I've kind of identified that I am on the asexual spectrum. Mm. And so for me, I don't experience sexual attraction. And I'm like, well, that's interesting, Michelle, because I really enjoy sex, right? But I, I I hired a sex educator that specializes in asexuality to, to do a consult with me. And she was able to help me understand the difference between sexual attraction and sexual desire. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, in my owner's manual of how I work, which is part of what we do in our work is kind of help people figure out what their owner's manual is. 
things I know about myself is that I experience responsive desire. I am not a spontaneous desire person. As much as I love to talk about sex, I rarely actually want to have sex just out of like a spontaneous desire. So I know that I have to build up to wanting to have sex, which means I have to have arousal hit me first, right? So learning these things about myself shows up in my work, right? I'm going to need the client to connect with me sensually first. That that starts to turn me on to where sexual desire can show up. And I get to teach clients how to do that with me. And of course, every partner they have next is going to be different, but it's important for them to understand how to talk about it and to ask questions and to have kind of this baseline, almost like reparative sex education from kind of what's been screwed up in the sex education that they had in school or limited sex education that maybe wasn't pleasure-based, right? So so that's all part of our work is helping them understand me and themselves. Such an interesting point. My listeners, they know that they, I always say, I feel if there was no spark at the beginning in a dating world or kind of like a sexual encounter world, it's really hard to cultivate it. I know the context we're talking is significantly a different context. But what I'm hearing that it seems like, is there a part of it that people can translate? Like maybe they like someone and they can learn how to erotically connect with them. Is it a possibility? Yeah, yeah I think so. I know for myself, there's a whole list of different kinds of attraction we can have, right? There's sensual attraction to like, for me, I'll meet a person and go, oh man, I would just like to touch them and see how they touch me. And then they touch me really well. And I'm like, ooh, if you can touch me really well there, wonder how you can touch me here, right? That's how my kind of, how that shows up for me. I can be attracted to their intelligence, right? We might be having some kind of commonality. Maybe we're really excited about some of the same topics and that can be a big turn on, right? There's lots of different ways to to be attracted to a person. And I do think that with conscious touch, something like we teach in the wheel of consent about understanding who is this touch for? How can we be better at touch? There's things you can learn. And then learning how your partner operates and having a partner that knows how they operate. Those are like key things that could be taught that just don't get taught in our school system. So it's part of the, I think, development as adult sexual beings to start to figure that out. But what I'm hearing is that erotic energy can come from different facets of attraction? Is that, is that part For of For me, it can. I mean, I, I'm sure I also like to really honor the asexual world that mm-hmm. says that, that there's a wide range of how we engage mm-hmm. with sex or why we engage in sex. So I think ultimately we all need choice. Mm-hmm. We all need to make choices. And if you don't feel the spark in the beginning of a relationship, it doesn't have to be the end, but it really is going to be dependent on how much people know themselves or are willing to work on themselves to to figure out how they can show up together in erotic energy. Mm-hmm. And for specifically for survival, also right, the feeling of safety is so important. And I know big part of recovery for them and the work they do with you is kind of experiencing safety and embodiment. How yeah. do you help them to cultivate that? I am 100% showing up with unconditional positive regard. That's that's one first thing. And I and I think about some of my my cases, some of my favorite cases, like a story that came up. I remember one of my clients had sexual or a sexual assault history in childhood. 
And there was a moment where she said to me, I realized after our session that I can sleep in bed now. I used to have to sleep in a recliner because laying flat on my back wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. And this is a 50-some-year-old woman who's gone through this much of her, her life never being able to feel safe in her own bed. And wow. it's just from, I just show up and I'm, I'm there, I'm going to celebrate their no, right? I want them to neutralize that, that worry of how am I going to react to their no. Like when a client can, can, can actually express an authentic no to me, I get so enthusiastically happy. It's a, we have to kind of reroute those messages of I'm going to disappoint this person. And I'm like, no, I can trust you. When I, when you haven't given me a no, your yes doesn't mean anything to me, right? You could be just going along. I, I went along for years. I've been on the other side of this. I also know what it feels like to be in a space where I can, I can show up. I can say, I might want to have sex with you. And I have a partner who, if I just, I'm like, you know, my brain, I just can't seem to get present for this today. It's, it's for whatever reason, I'm just, I got to change my mind. My partner doesn't give me an ounce of grief about it. He says, thank you for taking care of yourself. Could we cuddle? Like there's just this transition, just like you would transition if you showed up and you had some ED issues happening, right? You would just transition to changing what you thought you were going to do next in your sexual encounter. If a no shows up, you can just change what you're going to do next in your connection, right? And I think that needs to be really solidified for for people that are trying to to have a safe feeling in their body. They've got to know the people around them are able to hold their no. And I think for people who are in a relationship with survivors, right? I think sometimes people say like, I get to have my emotions, but which I get. And they say like, okay, I can respect it now, but like I need a yes sometimes, right? I don't know how much of it then being authentic and receptive is that. Like if you're saying not now, but like needs to be tomorrow. How can people navigate those situations? I think that really comes down to, I, we, have to we have to hold two things, right? I know in my own relationship, just the other day, my partner gave me a no and I was really disappointed in it. And I let him know I was disappointed, but I also let him follow it up with, but I really, I really value autonomy. Mm-hmm. So yes, I want you to be able to tell me no. And it was my birthday, right? Like you know, oh, it's, no. <laughs> it's one of those things where we we have to like put ourselves in our in our partner's shoes. I don't want my partner doing something, especially with their body, that they're not a yes to. There's there's compassionate willingness. That's something that we practice a lot in surrogate partner therapy as the professional is I may not be a wanting. I may never pick my client up on the street and be like, you are the person I want to have sex with today right? Or you are the person that I want to give a massage to, or you are the per- whatever that thing is, right? But I have a real compassionate willingness to engage with my client because I want them to have whatever their growth potential is, right? And I think in partnership, we sometimes we're going to say, I just can't do this because I just don't want to. And sometimes we're going to say, you know, I am really willing to what whatever that thing might be. It might not be that I'm willing to have penetrative sex. It might be that I'd be really happy to to be with you and, and engage with your masturbation or you can still have that connection from a place of willingness, but not give away 
the the sacredness of our our autonomy like that's it, it's a it's it's a mind body connection situation that needs to be worked out absolutely and i think as far as kind of helping people somatically with feeling kind of grounded feeling safe with a surrogate partner what kind of activities besides consent training which is so important that people often do in the sessions yeah, well, we do a lot of touch work around like sensate focus, mm-hmm. right? So so can we touch with integrity? Am I doing only what I told you I was going to do or am I moving beyond what I set as our boundary, mm-hmm. right? Are we honoring those, that container that we're setting together? Because if I am always poking up against the, the, the fence, mm-hmm. my partner is never going to trust me to stay within what we've agreed to. And so we start that right off the bat with with touching objects where we learn how to feel pleasure in our fingertips and to be curious with our touch and to to touch for our own pleasure. We're not worried about what the what the mouse feels like when we're touching it, right? I, I hold up a computer mouse, not a live mouse, but <laughs> we don't worry about what that object feels like. And that's what we're trying to help our clients do is start to touch for their own pleasure. So that when I when I'm engaging with you in a sexual space, I'm not I'm trying to not only utilize the path of indirect pleasure where I say, you know, I want let's see here. I would love to give you oral sex. And your partner says, OK, but we don't talk about who it's for. If I'm wanting to give you oral sex because I like the response that you give me from the oral sex. And that's what's going to give me pleasure is you responding to it. It puts a lot of pressure on your partner to respond a certain way so that you get the feeling that you need, right? And we start to pull that apart to say, could we just experience our own pleasure? What would give me pleasure in touching you? Well, one thing I really love is, this is in the platonic world, but I really love tracing people's faces with my fingertips. It's very intimate. I have them put their their head in my lap and I just, I just, learn all the intricate details of their face. And it's so sweet. That's for me. My partner doesn't have to do anything to provide me with that pleasure. They just are giving me the gift of letting me touch their face, right? And we can translate that into the sexual environment too. And it just makes for a more honest way to connect. And I think it's really good for everyone to kind of have this check-in about their hidden agenda as you were talking about it, right? Am I offering to give you an oral sex because I want to receive one? Even like, you know, not even it's about your response. It's I know yep. that if I do that, like you feel obligated or you feel pressured. Or like when I do the sensei focus, like homework, I give it to couples. They talk about how difficult it is to focus on a taker's touch, right? Like mine goes to, I'm going to do this for for them to enjoy it. Yep. Even if the assignment is for them because they feel just so disconnected with what they like. And for survivors, how can they discover, rediscover their erotic template, sensuality through exercises? Well, I think first it's important that they start those exercises not in the erotic space, right? Again, it's building up that rep- rapport with your partner that they're going to honor whatever limits are put on the space. And then it's like following your yes. Like, 
taking a chance to ask for what you want, that, like in the in the situation with the oral sex, wouldn't it feel better for everyone if you just said, I would really love to receive oral sex. Would you be willing to to do that for me? Right? Like, that's so much better than being like, can I do this for you in hopes that I get it for me? Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, we have to get rid of the guilt, mm-hmm. right? The guilt and the shame for having desires. Mm-hmm. So, so if we start that with lower stakes, Mm-hmm. asking me for a back rub or offering me something that you would like. So we ask the question, how would you like me to touch you? And then I get to think about it. And it's like, scan your body. This is like the baby steps, right? Scan your body. What part of your body feels like it would like attention? Mm. Well, oh, this feels really, this feels really hard to say out loud, but I'm going to say, I would really love if you, if you could pull on my ears. Mm -hmm. And I feel embarrassed that I'm asking for that because it seems like a weird request. No, that's a great request. Thank you for asking. How can I do it the best way that like what would make this the most best ear pulling you've ever had? Well, I don't know. I've never asked for this before. We break it down into these little steps, right? So then it's like, okay, do you like this pressure on your ears? Do you want me to pull them down real hard and fast? Do you want this slow? Like, am I massaging your earlobe while I do this? And it's like getting a chance to practice, communicating exactly what you want so that your partner can dial it in exactly the way you want it. Because as a, as a person doing that, it feels great to give your partner exactly what they want. And we're not mind readers, Mm -hmm. but we put the pressure on our partner to have this magical like dialogue already in their head of, how they should want to touch me in exactly the way I want them to, even though I've never been able to communicate it. Mm-hmm. But I'm taking all the responsibility off of me and putting it on my partner. And that I hear a lot of sex therapists come to me when they are like, I have this couple in the, in one of the partners says, why can't that partner just do it the way that, that it feels good? It's like, well, you haven't communicated that yet. I shouldn't have to tell them. Yeah, actually you should have to tell them. We just are trying to avoid the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to doing these things when the stakes are a lot lower than when we're naked in bed next to our partner is really important. Right. And I think of being comfortable, practicing being comfortable with people's disappointment in a way, right? In a perfect world, we have someone that they can show up for us, that they can kind of like be open and authentic, but also kind of not punitive. But in reality, in the cruel reality of dating like now I can see that there are times that people are selfish and people kind of get the kind of get re-traumatized in the world of dating and touch so that's why I think surrogate partner therapy when it's done with someone that's safe and kind of like they're thoughtful as you can be a really great way of rewriting the kind of like that story and kind of reconnecting with our bodies anything that you want our survivors to know before we close our conversation. I think that I think it's I think the thing that I hear a lot in as a as a cis female primarily working with cis men surrogate partners or surrogate clients, they want to know for sure that they're going to get to have sex with me. And I want to say no. Like let's don't do the work unless you're okay going through the process whether you get to have sex or not. That's that would be my message to that group. But then I have like one of my colleagues who is a cis male working primarily with cis women. He reports to me that a lot of times he needs to make sure that they understand they don't have to have sex with him. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in the survivor world, that might be a really important thing to hear mm-hmm. that I think the work is not about the sex. The work is about learning how to engage with another human being just on a basic human level with some physical contact. So it doesn't have to match your sexual orientation, though, if that's where things get complicated, I think it's certainly helpful. But we're also there's not a lot of us around. So sometimes it's better to start somewhere and get some of that foundational work built up. And then you could bring other practitioners in or travel for the parts you weren't able to get or get referred out to somebody else that can meet that that erotic component. Whatever it is, I think the message is that's so important is that sex does not need to be the the main focus of this work. Beautiful, beautiful. So if our listeners are interested to learn more about you, I know you're so prolific. You have a book coming up. You have a podcast. You have a thriving practice. What, what are some of the places they can find you? Yeah, my umbrella website to find pretty much Everything that I touch is meetmichellerenee.com. And I'm also at meetmichellerenee on all social medias. And I did, we just are finishing up Soft Cock Week, which is one of my little projects. And I, I started a podcast this year just for Soft Cock Week. So those will all be on your favorite podcast app. But I also have my own personal podcast called The Intimacy Lab that is also available on all the podcast apps. What a beautiful name. We'll make sure that we leave it link to all of these resources. Thank you so much for your time. So good to be here. In today's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Rene, an intimacy guide and therapist who specializes in working with trauma survivors. We discussed the importance of safe connections in therapy and how body-centered practices can aid in healing. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel for new episodes every week and be sure to hit the subscribe button for more insightful conversations. In the YouTube channel, I do more of a specific teaching. So let me know what kind of a topic you would be interested in learning more about. I would make sure that I'll create more content around that. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.